You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. As I customarily do, I'm going to jump into a couple of Natural Stacks products that I dig and how I use them and what I notice. And today it's the Mood Stack, which has four products in it. The Serotonin Brain Food, GABA Brain Food, Vitamin D3, and Curcumin. And you may not know this, but the Serotonin Brain Food and the GABA Brain Food are just like all Natural Stacks products made to work together. And these two are really complementary. Serotonin is about positive mood and social ability, and GABA is about relaxation and calmness. And the vitamin D3, as you probably already know, supports uh, immune function. Uh, It also supports general health and well-being, especially if you live in northern latitudes where you don't very get much sunshine. And then the curcumin. And I've been taking curcumin every single day for years and years, and my body stays healthy. Uh, Normal and healthy joint function um, it sustains metabolic function. It's anti-inflammatory. It's killer. It's got. Uh, it's made with um, with organic coconut oil. These are awesome products that I dig. And if you use the code MAC15, M-A-C-15, you get 15% off your first online picture purchase. And if you're sort of a stressed out, um, hardworking kind of person that's got a lot going on, and um, this might be the the right stack for you. On today's episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast, we dig in with Nina Teicholz. And Nina Teicholz wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise. And this basically goes over, this book took 10 years to write because Nina got into so many different studies around how it was that uh, saturated fats were bad for you. Tells the story about why it, it is this it is the way that it is now why the food pyramid kind of is set up the way that it is and it's a really fascinating conversation a lot of this information we we already know uh, why butter meat and cheese belong in a healthy diet like that's not that off the wall for most of the listeners I assume but she gets into uh, really the policy around it and the politics around it it's a really cool conversation it moves quickly and I, and I think you're gonna enjoy it You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. Nina, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I like to start every every podcast with the same question for all of our guests, which is what is in your body today? What have you taken? What sort of supplements? What food? Like what's what's in Nina right now? Oh, that's a good way to start off a show. Uh, nothing is the answer except for coffee. So I do intermittent fasting and I do not have anything to eat normally before noon. Uh, so that's it. That's an easy answer. Do you put anything in your coffee or is it you just drink black coffee? I just drink black coffee. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the same answer we get from everybody. <laughs> oh, I learned something, you know, I've been reading, um, I talking recently to a very, uh, famous, uh, scientist who studies protein 
And he, um, one of his papers uh, actually was said, noted something that was a little alarming to me that I wanted to learn more about, which is that for people, as you get older, um, you um, cannot make your own protein uh, for your own body to restore your muscles uh, easily. And so for adults, uh, like people, I'm sorry, like people past a certain age, as you get older, you need to more regularly eat protein particularly protein, because your body cannot synthesize it. So now I am considering actually having, say, like an egg at breakfast, um, because I am of an age when I'm probably not synthesizing my own protein. Interesting. Uh, it was, was it, was it uh, based, on, based on a study on some research that just showed that our ability to, cr- to, to make protein or to synthesize protein is, or process protein just declines? Yeah, apparently this is just well established in the literature. I mean, one of the things, this is, and the, the scientist is named Don Lehman. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois. And we can put in the show notes, if you like, I can post some of these papers for people to read if they're interested. Apparently, it is well established. So eating protein becomes more important as you get older. It makes sense, right? I mean, um, the protein that we eat is, is, you know, helps us keep lean muscle, make lean muscle. And so it makes, you know, it makes sense that as we age, our ability to do that effectively declines. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, but otherwise I, I, I believe in intermittent fasting and, uh, it has definitely worked for me. And, um, you know, it seems like fasting is such an incredibly easy way to manage your weight. There's just no thought like what is the advice don't eat that's it you just all you have to do is not eat for a while and i just read an article about how there are all these um silicon valley startups that are trying to make millions of dollars off of this fasting concept because it's intermittent fasting has gained in popularity so much and i was thinking how do you propose to make money off of that concept really here's the secret don't eat don't consume how are we gonna make how we monetize that Well, well, it's, it runs, it's perfect for our conversation today because, you know, um, demystifying myths or, or rather, you know, going against conventional wisdom is something that you have now made, you've made a career of, of debunking and digging deep into what, cause, cause telling somebody not to eat, even a heavy person is sort of controversial. Like telling someone, Hey, you should eat less. Even that, even, even that statement alone for a lot of people is like sort of a red flag and the people are like, well, what? no, 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 no. I'm supposed to have three square meals a day. I'm supposed to start my day with, with a bowl of grain. I'm supposed to have a mid morning snack. And, and, and so even saying that is probably like not for our audience or myself who I also don't eat until two o'clock every day and intermittent fast and eat ketogenically. Um, even that statement alone is a little bit controversial. Right. Well, we were told that you were supposed to eat uh, small portions throughout the day in order to keep your metabolism up. It, that was supposed to be a, a boost for your metabolism. And actually, we were taught to um, to not just three square meals a day, but to have uh, you know five or six smaller meals. That was what was considered better. That was the way you, you kept you boosted your metabolism. That was absolutely based on no good science at all. And you know, one of the explanations for the obesity epidemic is that we became a snacking culture. The whole snack food industry promoted this idea that you needed to have lots of snacks throughout the day. Uh, and, and now we know that what does your body really need? Your body needs a rest from the circulating glucose in, in your bloodstream in order to repair itself and in order not to have circulating insulin, right? 
anytime you have glucose in your bloodstream, you've triggered the release of insulin and that prevents you from accessing your fat stores, right? So any, anybody who's on a ketogenic or low carb diet, diet knows that, but, um, but you know, that's clearly not the advice that Americans have been told. Myth busting. You're right. <laughs> right. Myth busting for sure. Well, I, I know that the book was published in 2014, right? Yes, my book, The Big Fat Surprise. The right. Big Fat Surprise. Can you give can you give our listeners who are going to be shaking their head as they're listening to this, driving in their car, like, yes, of course, naturally. Can you tell us a little bit of the thrust of the book and what you found based on all of your research? Just like sort of what is what is the bottom line? Um the main argument of the book is around saturated fats, the kind of fats that are found in um, animal foods, but also coconut and palm oil. And we have thought for decades that those fats cause heart disease. So the main argument of my book is that those fats do not have any impact on your cardiovascular health. Um, in fact, they're probably good for your cardiovascular health. Um, and that was a very, that's a very controversial argument still. Um, I think the larger story of my book is it really tells the story of how we went down this path of having wrong nutrition guidelines. Like, how do we come to believe that fat and cholesterol and especially saturated fat are bad for health? What is the story? And of course, it's a story much more of politics than of science, right? I mean, it's really an amazing story about science really being suppressed and about uh, how how scientists can be just as political as politicians. And, you know, it's just, it's a really rip roaring story. One of my favorite descriptions of the book is by the economist magazine, which wrote a really nice review of it. And they said, you know, this book, you cannot imagine that this would be a page turner, but it is um, because you just can't believe how it could go so wrong and stay so wrong for so long. Um, but I also think it's important for me to say that, you know, when I started off this book, I was a vegetarian, been a vegetarian, you know, 25 years. and ended up putting a piece of red meat on the cover of the book because it's so it took me a, nearly a decade to research and at the end of it I realized wow everything I thought about fat and nutrition was just completely 100% wrong. Yeah, and when you when you take into account the sort of outside pressures upon the different industries to promote this grain and corn and you know uh, uh, seed oils and stuff like that um it it's it it's enough to make it's enough to make someone really frustrated and to to ask questions about you know how policy works and how politics works because we you know I, I'm from the generation uh, that, that you know sort of Gen I guess I'm a, I'm on the I'm on the tail end of the millennials I'm sort of the oldest millennial and my dietary experience growing up and the, and and the sort of dietary uh, reality of my parents is that you need lots of grain is that you need lots of pasta you need lots of bread and 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 it's it's taking a while to sort of undo that that narrative right yeah i mean well this is what we've been told because we've been told this for three generations now you know your parents grew up believing that i mean i was caught in i was growing up in the 1970s and you know i can remember the moment in our kitchen when we stopped having my grandmother's meatball and cream sauce for dinner and you know, in came the wok and the stir fried vegetables and the, you know, more pasta, more grains. And, you know, that really caused me to gain weight and not be healthy. But, but you're so convinced that by what you're being told and you go to the nutritionist, and they tell you eat more grains, more, and you're not doing good enough job and you need to eat more fruits and vegetables. And, and, and really I believed it. I believed 
100%. I counted every calorie. I counted every fat calorie. I mean, and I don't know why I never questioned the conventional wisdom. It just always, what we're told is that we don't try hard enough. Um, I used to just exercise all the time and, and I just could not lose weight. Um, right. So, you know, it's incredibly, the story is, um, you know, people say when they're reading my book that sometimes they have to put it down because they get so angry. Um, like it is a story that make that is, it's, it makes you very cynical, I think about how policy works and how science works. And, you know, you would assume that scientists and policymakers would respond to the best possible evidence, um, and then try to make the nation healthy, but they don't. And then you see it again and again and again. And here, I'll just tell you a story. Um, how about if I just tell you a story from today? Because like this is still going on. So one of the things that has come out of my writing is that I, I founded a not-for-profit in Washington, D.C. to say, like, let us, we need to change our guidelines, <laughs> our nutrition guidelines, because they're making people fat and sick and they're wrong. And so there's this study recently that probably many of your people in your audience have, have heard about, but it was a ketogenic diet that was given to um, over 200 diabetic patients, people who had serious diabetes, like eight years on average had the disease. So not like easy people to, to reverse out of diabetes. At the end of one year of that ketogenic diet, they had reversed diabetes, meaning their average blood glucose level was below the diabetic level in 65% of those patients. Wow. So, okay. So just imagine here we have a type two, this is type two diabetes. We have an epidemic of this in our country. The, the project leader of that study, Sarah Hallberg, it was a University of Indiana-based, university-based study. Um, and um, she, we went to Congress to say there's a food as medicine group in Congress. And we said, why don't you get a, have a briefing on this study? Imagine you could reverse 65% of diabetes maybe in one year in the United States if you adopted this idea. And she was going to be invited for a briefing, and then that briefing was canceled hmm. because there are people in Congress who do want to uh, reverse diabetes and who care about the public health, but there are so many forces that are pushing against that, right? There are all the forces that have defended this wrong diet for so many years. I mean, all the public health associations, the American Heart Association, like they they are lobbying against this information coming out. You know, it begs the question, right? And I, and I, you know, um, without maybe, maybe you get to this in the book a little bit, but, but what, what, where my mind goes is, is there, is there, is there a greater sort of nefarious angle, right? To keep people sick and fat and dependent on, um, the corn industry and the grain industry. Is, is there, is there a greater conspiracy to, to keep people sick? Um, it's a complicated answer to that. I don't think there's a conspiracy theory. I think there's a set of really strong interests that prevent change, right? And I'll, we'll just go through them briefly. The food industry, as you say, corn, soy, wheat, big vegetable oils, which include companies like Monsanto, ADM, Cargill, Bungie, some of the biggest companies in the world. They do not they want you eating vegetable oils. They do not want to lift the caps on saturated fats, right? They want you eating those unsaturated fats instead. So there's a big interest of the food industry to 
prevent change. Um, and then um, secondly, there is an interest by every university and every public health association and all the professionals who have invested, you know, three generations of professionals who've invested their careers in telling Americans to eat a high grain, high carbohydrate diet, right? Or, so how can they say they're wrong, right? All the scientists at Harvard and Tufts and they would all have to admit they're wrong. The American Heart Association would have to admit that it launched this bad advice in 1961 and it was wrong from the start. I mean, how can you do that? It seems almost inconceivable. Um, so, and there is the, in, the interest of um, pharmaceutical companies who clearly have an interest in keeping America sick, right? So, and who do they support? Uh, you know, when I started doing my research, I just did not understand, like, why do food scientists get all this money from big pharma? <laughs> but they do. There's a huge amount of big pharma money going into nutrition research because they want to support this, basically, this diet that keeps Americans sick. And who supports the American Diabetes Association? 100% uh, device companies, pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, they, in their last two annual meetings, have not even had one session on low carbohydrate eating. They, um, uh, <laughs> there's not, a, there's not a single conversation about low carbohydrate eating at their, at their annual meetings. Um, and instead you can get things like, Oh, you know, like a, a, a device that, that attaches surgically to your stomach so that you can, it's like medical bulimia where you can, the food comes out and, and you, and you have no. that. Yeah, so you could eat bad food and then expels through your stomach to this. I mean, it's so revolting. Oh my gosh! Those are, the, those are the companies that support the American Diabetes Association. Same with the American Heart Association, supported by all kinds of pharmaceutical companies and food companies. Um, so those, in you know, it's very cynical. And I hate to have this this thought, but it is true that if if you tell Americans to just go eat a healthy diet, they are no longer taking five, six, seven medications a day. They're no longer on insulin. And that does not benefit, you know, pharmaceutical and device companies. Yeah. There, there's got to be, you know, I wonder about the, like, sort of the, the, the line, you know, what the suggestions would be. Because, you know, uh, so my, myself, uh, as an example, you know, I've been eating ketogenically you know, I usually do 80, 20, I have a cheat day, you know, for the most part, I eat really high fat, moderate carbohydrates, you know, but, but they're, you know, yams and sweet potatoes and stuff like that. I try to stay away from fried, fried foods and, and lots of leafy greens. And my cholesterol is in conventional with conventional wisdom, just off the charts, like, like really asking for heart disease because my cholesterol is really high and has been really high for a number of years. Total cholesterol? Or LDL. Um. Uh. Last time I checked, uh, I don't remember actually. I'm not sure which which it was. I think they were both high. Okay. Um. But that for for the people who are who are taking their sort of own nutrition and eating for what feels right and what what keeps them less inflamed, you know what what what's gonna what's it gonna take to sort of reprogram uh, common wisdom and knowledge about about having cholesterol, having high cholesterol and having that not be, um, a health risk. So, um, 
So one of the things that I chart in my book is I go through the history of the science on cholesterol markers, right? It starts with total cholesterol. And then it was discovered pretty definitively that your total cholesterol is unrelated to your cardiovascular risk. It's just not an act. It does not track with cardiovascular risk. And that's why they then shifted over to LDL cholesterol. Um, LDL cholesterol, um, also, it turns out, um, in many diet studies, there is no correlation with, this is your load, your LDL cholesterol is your low density lipoprotein. It's the one that's supposed to be bad. But they could not find that with diet, they could, they could never see that people who changed their diets and whether or not they had a heart attack or, you know, what kind of outcome like died or had a heart attack, it, it didn't track at all with LDL. Not at all. Um, so you have to think like, well, why am I worrying about my LDL? And that the reason you're worrying about your LDL is that, uh, drug companies have figured out a way to lower your LDL, right? That's what statins are. So they have huge investment in LDL being the causative, most important risk factor. They tried to make a drug to increase HDL, which is your good cholesterol, but they couldn't do that. They tried all these trials and they turned out all their drugs killed people. So they have no financial incentive in, in HDL. They have a huge incentive in emphasizing your LDL. But again, what happens to your LDL and diet has no relationship to your cardiovascular risk. Um, LDL just turns out to be this highly unreliable uh, marker. I mean, I don't know if you've talked to your audience about the work of Dave Feldman, known as Keto Dave on Twitter, but he has basically figured out a way to completely hack your LDL um, because, uh, and he just says, you know, for people on keto, it often happens for people on keto that their LDL raises, goes up quite a bit. Um, But it turns out that if you just increase, I think it's like 500 calories a day of fat in the three days before you go to get your LDL, your cholesterol tested at your doctor, your LDL plummets. And that has to just to do with, you know, what LDL does, it clears the fat from the system. So if you add more fat, you're employing all the LDLs. And so they're not, you know, they're all working really hard. Uh. So, so he's, you know, so he's solved this problem that people on low carb diets have, which is they feel great. They like, everything's better. Their energy better, their mood's better. They, they just, everything is better. But then they go to the doctor and the doctor says, your LDL is up and I'm going to put you on a statin. And then they think, oh, you know, maybe I am increasing my cardiovascular risk. But it right. just turns out your doctor only has pills for LDL. <laughs> That's why he's focused on it. Your LDL is highly variable depending on what you've eaten for the last three days. And you can completely manipulate the results so that you do not have to tussle with your doctor about taking a statin. <laughs> Which I think really... My husband came home and he's like, you know, my doctor trying to get me on a statin. And he said like 10 out of 10 cardiologists would recommend a statin for you. And I said, you know, 10 out of 10 cardiologists are wrong (laughs) about so many things. So let's, you know, and to get on a lifelong drug, which, you know, by the way, statins have unreported side effects. There's never been public disclosure of the statin data for outsiders to confirm or to really reassess what all the side effects are. I mean, that is, um, it's an ongoing struggle to try to get public access to that data. So, you know, going on a lifelong medication is a very serious thing to do. And 
follow the money, right? What, where, wh- who, who gains, who gains from this? Like who's, who, which incentive? And that's, and that's really sort of the, the, the main, the main key. So since, since the publish of the book, um, I know that you've, you've appeared on tons of podcasts. Um, you know, I saw you on the Joe Rogan uh, podcast, me and 7 million other people. Um, what's, what's, what are you grappling with now? Like, it sounds like you're, you're, you're taking it, um, you're taking it to DC to, to, to try to institute organizations that will help push, uh, this information out. What, what's the most common thing, uh, that you're up against and what do you have to convince people of? What, What are you faced with day in, day out? Well, I started this group called the Nutrition Coalition because um, although I had written this book and gotten a lot of attention, it just turns out that not the whole world has adopted my point of view, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which is not so important except for that uh, I realized in, I realized over the course of the last couple of years really how important these nutrition guidelines are that come out of our government. You know, you think, all of us think, I don't go to a .gov website to find out how to eat and and who does. But the reality is they shape so much of what we think about, you know, how, how most Americans eat. It's like, you know, school lunch programs, feeding programs for the elderly, how all our military rations. And by the way, 14% of our military is obese. Um, wow. How is that? Because... They follow the dietary guidelines and they are told this is what they have in these military cafeterias, pasta, food that speeds you up, good energy food, meat, food that slows you down. They literally have like red, yellow and and green stickers on the food. And there's a big red sticker on the meat. So these guys are getting fat and not only are 14% obese, but two thirds up to two thirds are overweight or over or obese. And, you know, at any point in time, 10% of our military is unable to serve. So that's pretty amazing, right? So the military, schools, feeding programs for the elderly, and even more important, I would say, is that the dietary guidelines are really downloaded to every doctor's office, every nutritionist's office, every, every um, dietitian, every nurse. Their professional associations just download the guidelines, and then they go out to every office, every hospital, every clinic in the country. Also, all nutrition education in schools. So every time you go to a healthcare practitioner, you are getting the guidelines. And everybody's told, eat more grains, don't eat fat, you know, ramp up on the fruits and vegetables, avoid red meat. Um, And so I realized that, like, that's just, you know, even if all of us and all of your listeners have, have taken care of their own health, maybe they're able to help their family, but they probably still, like, they they're afraid to go to their doctor and have to explain their crazy diet or their child at school or their elderly parent at a nursing home or somebody goes to the hospital and, you know, goes into relapse because they're fed some really like high carb crappy hospital food. All of that is controlled by the guidelines. And that's what I realized this has to change. And so that's when I started um, doing this work in Washington and, you know, it's a huge undertaking. I bet. (laughs) But it just has to happen. It's like, it has to happen because otherwise you know, the trajectories on obesity and diabetes and all these fatty liver disease, Alzheimer's, everything is just, they just get worse and worse. And the conversation in Washington is so closed. It is really like our dietary guidelines are fine. Everything's fine. It's just Americans are too lazy and stupid to follow them. And that is why, you know, if only we could just get it into their heads, how important it is to do a better job and exercise more. So, you know, that is, it's just a tragic situation. So 
Um, so it's a big job. You know, we have to do something to, you know, part, the reason the guidelines are so bad is that, that the experts in charge have been basically allowed to cherry pick the science. Like they just select the science that they, they want. So one of our jobs is to try to really enact um, some kind of legislative change that says, look, the guidelines need to be based on sound science. Like this is, it's crazy to base our guidelines on this really weak kind of data called epidemiological data. I mean, just to give you an example, those caps on cholesterol, the reason that everybody avoided egg yolks and shellfish for so long, that was all based on this weak data. And then they, you know, so then people for decades don't eat these healthy foods with lots of nutrients in them. And then they, you know, and then they said, oops, sorry, we were wrong about that. Well, how many millions of Americans have suffered in the meantime? Also the low fat diet, you know, that's all based on this kind of weak epidemiological data. So our effort is to just try to say you must use good, rigorous science. So what's what's some of the good science? What 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 sort of studies are are um, important based on on what you've seen? Well, you know, in general, in science, there's this so there's this weak epidemiological data that comes from people writing down food frequency questionnaires. I don't know if you've talked to your listeners about that, but that's when people say like, you know, how many peaches did you eat in the last six months? And how many pears did you eat in the last six months? I mean, it's really unreliable data. Right. And they take that data and they put it in a computer and then they see, you know, who 10 years later dies or suffers from disease. And, you know, most of these studies, they only ask you once about your diet as if nothing ever changes. Um, but in any case, even if they ask you every six months, like, I don't even remember what I ate yesterday, much less. <laughs> <laughs> so that data is really unreliable. Uh, you know, the only kind of data that really can show cause and effect in nutrition is our what's called randomized controlled clin clinical trials. Like that study on type two diabetics I told you about, that was a random, that was a controlled clinical trial where you, you separate people into two groups, you give half the, you know, you give one group, you give, say, a diet high in saturated fats. The other group, you give a diet low in saturated fats. Actually, this experiment that I'm describing was done in the 1960s and 70s. It, huge experiments were done. They could never find that the people eating less saturated fats and replacing them with vegetable oils, so like margarine instead of butter and soy-filled milk and soy-filled cheese. And yeah, those people... Um, they never could show that those people had any benefit. There was no benefit. And in fact, the, the, in one of the most famous study called the Minnesota Coronary Survey, the men who lowered their cholesterol more actually had higher rates of cardiovascular death. And the people eating more vegetable oils, this was found in numerous trials, died at higher rates of cancer. So this is the amazing thing. What happened to all those studies? Why do our, why did we not know about them? Why did our, and the answer is really that's sort of part of the incredible cover-up story. Like these like studies weren't published, sat in basements, uh, results never, you know, never saw the light of day, never included in review papers, just this, this really good rigorous evidence that was paid for by our government, therefore by us taxpayers, was just never used. It was ignored. Um, and that's because it came out contrary to like what the dominant hypothesis was and nobody could accept it or believe it what drew you to to this line of work and i know i know that you were a vegetarian for a long time and you ate the way that you were told you know the the way that you were suggested to 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 be healthy i i, I experienced a similar thing i diet uh, i was a, a vegetarian for for two years in college because i was trying to lose weight and stay fit 
and I could not eat enough food. I, I, I was never satiated. I, I so then that means way more cheese, way more bread, and it's college, so way more beer. And I was bloated, and I was heavy, and I was tired, and I had bad skin, and I had sore joints. You know, trying to play college soccer as a vegetarian, I just couldn't get enough food. Um, what is that? Was that a catalyst for you? Your sort of own your sort of own dietary journey was that was that a catalyst to jump into ten years ten years of of study to to tell the story? Um, yeah, uh, no is the answer. No, I did not. Um, I was not as smart as you. (laughs) I got into this because I was doing, um, a series of kind of investigative stories for a magazine called Gourmet, which is just a food magazine that wanted to understand more about the food industry. And I, and then I was assigned this article on trans fats. Well, this is the early 2000s. Like nobody really knew much about trans fats. So that really plunged me into this world of fats you know, good fat, bad fat, and, and all these fats. Um, and, uh, sorry, let me just go back. So I, I got this assigned to do this story about trans fats. And, um, when I started researching that story, I started talking to scientists who told me stories that that just seemed unbelievable. Like, you know, somebody had tried to yank their article from a journal or, you know, somebody sounding the alarm, a scientist sounding the alarm about trans fats, you know, which are found in like in margarine, the margarine executives visiting her in her office and trying to get her to stop doing her research and threatening her. And people, I mean, just crazy stories. Like I couldn't believe this was science happening. Um, so um, once I started writing this, so I started writing my book about trans fats, but once I got involved in this area, I realized that there was a much bigger story here about all fats, you know, good fat, bad fat, non-fat, you know, all this that what dietary recommendations have obsessed about most, which is, you know, fat content. It just seemed we had gotten it all upside down and backwards. Um, And so it became a kind of super obsessive. (laughs) (laughs) discovered the degree to which I'm really a compulsive obsessive person because <laughs> you know you just want to you want to read every single piece of science I kind of did and then you start to realize like oh this is so controversial what I'm finding and I'm it's really important that I be right like I, I have to read and track down every single possible argument to the contrary I have to try to prove myself wrong I have to you know I have to be sure that I'm right and that just took so many years to get through, um, you know, so much research and, and so much of it actually never got published. Like I have 15,000 words on fish oils into <laughs> 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 the book, <laughs> but, um, you know, it just became really obsessive and it really, for me, it wasn't about my own nutrition. I think my, as I discovered things, my diet changed. Um, but it, it was, that's not why I went into it. You know, I just, but then as I discovered the, the new science on low carb and on meat and all that, I just, you know, like so many people who discover it, then you, that's just, it's such a reward and you feel so much better. Yeah. 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 So you follow the, you, you were, you were given a task, you were doing, you were doing a, a job and you followed the rabbit down the hole and you kept going and you kept going and you kept going and you kept going and, <laughs> and one study led to another. Well, I, I think it's admirable. It's, it's obviously not an, it's not a, it's not a popular 
it's not it's not a popular stance to take and it goes against conventional wisdom and it goes against politics and policy and and really does sort of myth bust um but i i really respect and appreciate your your willingness to 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 make sure that you're right to to synthesize all of these studies to tell the story because i think i think most of us um and and our listeners are are they're going to be they're going to be shaking their head through this entire like yes of course yes of course yes of course but the greater population i think they i think that they probably know what that that how they feel when they eat when they eat poor food and 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 even calling it vegetable oil is sort of a misnomer right because it's 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 what what is a canola anyway like what is that who knows <laughs> i know what an olive is i know what right. avocado is using that oil makes sense but why canola right you know what's in pam like what these sorts of these sorts of manufactured fake foods i think when people eat these sorts of foods they know that they feel lousy but they trust their doctors and they listen to the conventional wisdom and uh and it's going to be a long road you know it's going to be a long road to 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 educate sort of the greater population about uh, uh that they've been duped and they for a long time yeah, and I think probably your listeners have this experience where they know it works for them. They have multiple frustrating conversations with their, you know, doctor or even people in their family. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how long it took me to just get my mom to stop having low-fat, high-sugar yogurt for breakfast every morning. She's like, "Well, you know, I'll ask my doctor about that, sweetie." <laughs> Okay, that's fine. Your doctor who's had one day of nutrition education over the course of, you know, her entire uh, career. Um, so, but, you know, the reality is, like, there are people, I think, like your listeners, who are willing to buck conventional wisdom, willing to, they're, they're you know, they're mavericks, they're people who are open-minded, and they don't necessarily trust establishment thinking on a lot of fronts. Um, and they feel comfortable going against conventional wisdom. But I think that, and I think there are many, many people for whom that is not true. Like my mom. Like, she is not one of those people. She will just do what her doctor tells her. And she does not feel comfortable, uh, you know, bucking convention. And there are many, many people, probably the majority of Americans for whom that is true. And so that's, again, why I just come back to this idea. We need the top-down advice to be right. You know, you need to, for that sick person who goes to their doctor to get the right advice, right? Because they are going to, you know, here, even you, you're worried about your cholesterol. That's because, you know, most people are worried if their doctor tells them something and that they might risk greater harm or disease or, you know, a heart attack down the line. Like, it's very hard to turn your ears off to that, right? Yeah. So that's why it has to be right at the top. Or People know advice, like blow up the dietary guidelines. But if this, they have to be right. So who who's getting it right? Which which sort of influencers um, in the space? You know, is it is it Mark Sisson for, with Primal? Is it Rob Wolf with Paleo? Who's who in your estimation? And I know that you're not you know you're not a dietitian, but you and like I know sort of what 
what an optimal way to eat is. Like what in your mind, who's getting it right? What sort of narrative is in line with what you've learned to be um, beneficial to people? Well, I think that, you know, the, that um, anybody who is on, you know, we're told to eat a diet that's over half of our calories from carbohydrates, right? So anybody who is advising people to eat fewer than, you know, less than that is doing a better job. Um, you know, there are a lot of different people in this space now and, um, and different things work for different people, right? I, I think that, you know, paleo, it's interesting, the paleo community is kind of becoming more keto now. I noticed that, you know, Rob Wolf and Mark Sisson, you know, it's just kind of a rebranding of Atkins, <laughs> frankly. Right, right. I mean, anything you know, low carb, high fat, or I even think, I think there's, uh, you know, Diet Doctor has a good website. I mean, there's a lot of ways into this diet. And the way I, I almost think of it like a car dealership, like when you go in to buy a car, they have like six different kinds of sales rep and they type you like, are you the, are you the suburban mom? Are you the cool dude who wants to, you know, and they send out the right person for you. I feel like it's the same way getting into low carb. Like, do you, you know, are you, are you, are you going to respond to Mark Sisson? Do you want to be a spear throwing paleo dude? Or do you want to get into it through, you know, like, uh, you know, the Tim Ferriss, slow carb who's more women for women. I mean, everybody's just got a brand that's that works for them. That suits them. Right. Uh, and they're somebody in one way or another. So I don't think you can, like, a lot of women, uh, go to Athens, but they still have a huge and vibrant community in sight. So I think any of those probably give pretty good advice. Um, and then, the, and then really it is something that people have to sort of, to use, uh, you know, biohack for themselves right? Like, this is what I did for a while. I, I used those ketone strips to kind of figure out like, well, how do I respond to those protein bars? You know, actually not that well. Turned out that fruit was a lot worse for me than I thought. Um, you know, and it also depends how sick you are. How overweight are you? How, you know, how sick are you? Um, I'm a little more lenient now because I just lost 10 pounds. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to go ahead and try to have some more ice cream every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> It's very individual for people. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think that it takes work. It's not easy, right? It's not easy for an individual who's been told to eat cereal for breakfast their entire life. It's not easy to change that. And you do have to reprogram your palate a little bit. You do have to reprogram your metabolism and give it a reboot through fasting or, um, or eating keto for a little bit. And, and it, it can be an, like... The, sh the sugar hang, like the, the cutting out sugar, the sugar detox is miserable. I mean, it sucks. Have you done, have you gone through like a no, like a strict, no sugar period ever? Yes, I have. It sucks. And, yeah, it does suck. Yeah. But you know, and I'm going to mention one other thing for your listeners, because it's something that is not frequently discussed, but for women, uh, for, so first of all, women and men have different responses to low carb. Um, and, and for women of a certain age, your hormones become super important. So if you are having a block as, you know, a middle-aged woman, you should have your hormones checked because that turned out to be very important for me. It's not something that's discussed all that widely. I don't know what your audience, your gender split of your audience is, but it just turned out that that was really important for me. You know, it, it, um, I was getting more sleep. I was, do, you know, I was doing everything right, but then the moment I dealt with my hormones, like everything fell into place. 
and how did you do that? Was it through a process of, of supplementation or changing diet or, or, or adding certain things have anything to do with your gut microbiome? Like what was the process? I got my hormones checked. Uh, and because, uh, you know, I'm middle-aged, my certain thing, you know, some of my hormones were dropping and now I take, um, supplements, um, to kind of restore them. And that has been fantastic. It improved my sleep. And, um, it just, and it helped me like really effortlessly drop weight where I had been struggling a little bit. So, you know, hormones, look, insulin is a hormone, right? right. I think people forget that. Yeah. It's a fat deposition hormone, right? So it's the most powerful one, but all your hormones, uh, have an influence on fat deposition, right? So when that's why people gain weight, um, uh, you know, they control your, your weight deposition changes when you go from being a a kid to a a man or a woman, right? That's hormones controlling that. Um, And so it's no surprise that other hormones have an impact on it. You know, cortisol, your stress hormone is another one um, that has an impact. So, and all these hormones, they have the, they draw upon precursors, the same precursors. So if you're, uh, if you're using, if you're highly stressed, then your, your cortisol, the, the precursors used to make cortisol are depleting your other hormones, which might need the same precursors, but they're all being used to create cortisol instead. Right. So that's an important part of the equation for people to deal with. Right. Yeah. If you're, yeah, I think if you're, you know, if you're low, if you're high cortisol, high inflammation and you're eating grain and you're doing chronic cardio, you know, and, uh, or, or no cardio, not moving at all. Like the, like you're, you're already creating that environment in your body to become more stressed, more inflamed. And, uh, and, and that means that you're, you know, there's, there's less serotonin and there's less melatonin for you to sleep. Yeah. It's all, it's all a balance. Um, it, so what's next? Where, where, where are you headed now? I mean, the nutrition coalition is a very big step to try to affect, you know, the top down. Um, is there another, is there another 10 decade, decade long researched book coming our way or, or what are you passionate about right now? What should people be reading or knowing? Uh, you know, my work is mainly right now with this not-for-profit, the nutrition coalition. If people want to learn more about that, um, or make a donation, it's at nutritioncoalition.us. Um, but I want to get back to doing more writing. Uh, and I do want to do another book. Probably it will be in the same space. Um, more about the politics of food, uh, which I just think it's like you just there's so much that has not yet been written about. I mean, the whole that how vegetarianism came to be the dominant idea in our country uh, is really a fascinating story that um, involves the Seventh Day Adventist Church <laughs> promoting it. So it really comes from like a religious organization that has kind of co-opted all these leaders anyway i can't even get into it now but i mean it's so interesting and um i do feel compelled to write about that that's what i'm going to have time wait a minute so the seventh day adventist church is involved in vegetarianism it's a it's part of their religious belief whoa should avoid yes and they they are the ones who have um, they do some of the most influential studies showing that their vegetarian diet is the best for health. I mean, but they, that's, they promote it as a religious belief and they have all kinds of connections with healthcare organizations across the United States and they influence, uh, 
They have influenced some of our leading researchers uh, in the field. So, and they, um, I, I want to make sure I'm getting this right, but I think it's the founder of the American Dietetics Association was a Seventh Day Adventist. <laughs> so there is there are all these religious currents going through. It's really this bizarre thing that this ideology has. It really is this. It's a faith-based ideology that has captured all of our nation's elite into thinking that this is the best possible diet. Wow. Anyway, for the next podcast, right? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) What a nice little nugget of wisdom that is. Interesting. Well, you got to write the book now because everybody's going to hear this and go, oh my God, what? And then they're going to do their own research and they're just going (laughs) to, they're going to follow the rabbit down the hole themselves. Well, Nina, thank you very much for for joining us. I know that you got to run. Um, this has been a really has been a really interesting conversation, and I know that there's lots to do. We'll we'll make sure that we've got uh, show notes set up. Um, and good luck with the Nutrition Coalition. Um, everyone that hears this is going to say yes, absolutely. We need to we need to blow up the food pyramid. We need to change all the guidelines. So I, I know that you'll have a lot of supporters with our audience. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Really fun. Yeah, you bet, Nina. Have a good day. You do too. Bye. For additional insights and practical lessons based on this show, go to naturalstacks.com. The Optimal Performance Podcast is a Natural Stacks original. Our executive producers are Dennis Buckley and myself, Sean McCormick. Our producer is Christian Randall. OPP intro music by Odyssey. Additional music provided by That New Jam. A Randy McCandle production.